Welcome to the BC Museum Association's Climate Action and Leadership Network podcast series. The summer of 2021 has seen destructive, record-breaking heat waves, unprecedented drought, and tragic wildfires that have displaced entire communities. It is critical that museums, heritage organizations, and cultural professionals demand climate action now, and that we all do our part to be advocates for change. The approach that museums and cultural institutions take towards climate action is critical. How does culture connect to climate action? How do we value nature? What are museums' roles in preserving and advocating for natural heritage? How can museums center Indigenous knowledge and climate action and disrupt legacies of settler colonialism in climate action? My name is Coe Taylor and I am the BCMA's Indigenous Outreach and Partnership Coordinator. I am joining from the unceded traditional territories of the Coquitlam, Musqueam, Squamish, Stolo, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. And my name is Tanya Poholuk. I'm the BCMA's Digital Engagement Specialist, and I'm joining from Amiskwichi, Wiskayagan on Treaty 6 territory, colonially known as Edmonton, Alberta. We are so grateful to be joined today by Dr. DeAndre Smiles. DeAndre is Ojibwe, Black and settler, and a citizen of the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe. He's an Indigenous geographer whose research interests include Indigenous geographies and epistemologies, science and technology studies, and tribal cultural resource preservation and protection. DeAndre's research extends into conversations examining more than human kin, creating new political possibilities for all living things, humans, and more than human alike in an era of climate crisis. DeAndre currently works as an assistant professor in the Department of Geography at the University of Victoria in BC, Canada. The BCMA's office is also located in what is colonially known as Victoria, land of the Lekwungen peoples on whose traditional territory the university stands, and the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wasanich peoples whose historical relationships with the land continue to this day. Welcome, DeAndre. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello. Thank you both for having me on the podcast. Um, Thank you for the very wonderful introduction about myself. Um, Just a little extra information beyond um, what you just listed about me. I teach coursework in Indigenous environmental activism, Indigenous geographies, and other sorts of human geographies here at UVic. I'm also in the process of starting a lab called the Geographic Indigenous Futures Lab, or the GIF Lab for short, where we'll be doing work at the intersection of climate change, Indigenous political sovereignty, and Indigenous futurisms. So again, thank you very much and very glad to be on here with you both today. Thank you. Yeah, we're so glad to have you. So DeAndre, just to start us off, we know this is probably quite a layered question, but we're curious, how can museums and cultural institutions center approaches to climate action that center Indigenous epistemologies, Indigenous ways of knowing, and disrupt settler colonial legacies? Thank you for that question. And so centering approaches to climate action that can center Indigenous epistemologies, ways of knowing, and disrupt settler colonial legacies, I think the very first and most important step is you have to have meaningful community engagement. A lot of times when we talk about centering Indigenous ways of knowing and ways of being, a lot of times we conflate that with inclusion or trying to simply adopt Indigenous ways of thinking into what we do. Inclusion only goes so far. Inclusion takes the idea of Indigenous epistemologies, but it doesn't really go any deeper into the deep relationships and accountabilities that come about through Indigenous epistemologies. 
And so to move beyond inclusion and to really get into meaningful community engagement, you have to be able to think about active community participation and input as well. The communities have to have an active voice in what's going on. They can't just have their ways of thinking be stripped away from them and be reused by settler colonial structures, but rather you have to give the community a seat at the table and you have to give them a seat at the table with the opportunity to actually make their voices heard and to have their opinions and thoughts be acted upon and taken into account when making decisions. It's really important to recognize that indigenous epistemologies and ways of knowing are steeped in generations of knowledge production, that they go back generations upon generations, millennia upon millennia, but we don't want to place them into a historical context. We don't want to think about indigenous epistemologies as being simply bound to the past because then that makes it, makes it into a form of erasure where we think, well, that mode of thought is in the past and it's old fashioned, we need to be forward thinking. We need to realize that indigenous epistemologies also are contemporary and also look towards the future. And they, by doing so, they push back against this move to relegate their ideas and their worldviews to the past. And it becomes more possible to view them as part of contemporary society and to view them as possible ways of looking towards the future and how we can cope with climate crisis and how we can take meaningful actions towards climate justice. And continuing with the thought about allowing or providing space for Indigenous communities to have an active role and participation in these sorts of discussions and spaces. Your recent essay, The Settler Logics of Outer Space, you discuss the continuing logics of settler colonialism and its future trajectories in the logics of space exploration. This essay, quote, demands that the American settler colonial state exercise self-reflexivity as to why it engages with outer space and who is advantaged and disadvantaged here on earth as a result of this engagement. So bringing this back into the climate action and conservation and the roles and spaces in which this happens, can you share how the legacies of settler colonialism show up in the ways in which we approach, approach space exploration and like I said, climate action and conservation and just ways and spaces that we can make room for Indigenous communities in these sorts of discussions? Sure. And so one of the really basic ways that settler colonial logics tie into outer space exploration is in the way that we view outer space as something it, that's called in Latin res nullius, which is translated to nobody's thing. A scholar named Alan Marshall back in the mid-1990s wrote about this and others have drawn on his work and continue to build this theoretical framework where Humanity, and in particular, spacefaring states such as the United States, such as the European Union, such as Russia and China, how they view outer space is this empty void that is designed to be colonized and designed to be exploited. In particular, in the essay, The Settler Logics of Outer Space, I really take a look at the American space program because in the recent State of the Union address by President, former President Donald Trump back in 2020, he used some very loaded colonial language to talk about the U.S. Space Force and about a renewed engagement with outer space. And he, he likened um, the Space Force to pioneers and tied them to 
the legends of hardworking Americans that built a country out of nothing in this very loaded colonial language that serves as an indigenous erasure because as we know, the United States didn't sprout up out of nothing, that there were indigenous peoples here before there was the United States and the United States built itself territorially and legally through the dispossession of indigenous land. And so on earth, we often talk about terra nullius or no man's land as that basis behind the grabbing and expropriation of indigenous land by the settler colonial state, essentially the idea that, well, the land is uninhabited or in other cases, the indigenous peoples are using it in ways that don't appeal to European slash Western sensibilities of land usage and tenure. So therefore it's as good as not being used because they're not using it in the correct way. And then that, that legitimized and legitimizes land grabs and dispossession and brutal genocide against indigenous peoples. Resnolius in space essentially functions the same way. So the day that that essay came out, there was coverage about water being found, I believe on the moon or on Mars. And immediately the conversation started to center around, well, if there's water on these inhospitable bodies, is it possible for us to colonize that? Or a few weeks before that, an asteroid was found to be passing close by Earth and people were talking about various things such as, oh, well, could the asteroid hit the Earth? But also I found an article about there they found that there were diamonds in the asteroid that people brought up, well, could we send a spacecraft up and mine diamonds from this asteroid? And it really kind of speaks to this idea that space is this politically inert, uninhabited, basically empty space that's just made for humanity to extend its reach up to and to colonize and to bend to our will in, in the name of colonization and resource extraction. And this trends really dangerously close to the land-based, terrestrially-based ideas, terra nullius, because it suggests that space belongs to no one until it does, right? That space is unclaimed and we need to go up and we, can, we need to claim it. And it also functions as kind of this obscured kind of way of colonialism, because we, we don't think about colonialism in the same ways in outer space because oftentimes people say, well, there's no indigenous people in outer space, right? There's no, there's nobody there to dispossess land from and therefore us colonizing space is perfectly fine. It's humanity's right. But logics of imperialism and settler colonialism can still apply to unpopulated quote space, even if there are no indigenous peoples there. When I was reading for my comprehensive exams in my PhD and I was reading literature on settler colonial logics, I read an article that was written about Antarctica and how in Britain, Antarctica was viewed as the perfect settler colony because it was viewed as a space where there's open land for people to move to, but there's also no indigenous peoples there. So, and this was Victorian era, England, Britain at the time, they felt, well, we don't need to deal with the messy business of uh, genociding indigenous peoples because there's no indigenous peoples here. And that logic can extends to space. And people think, well, there's no indigenous peoples in space, therefore we're not hurting anybody. And they don't think about land, even extraterrestrial land as possibly being something that's worth being in good relation to. And this also really ties in well to conservation. In reference to conservation, settler society often intentionally or unintentionally erases indigenous peoples. 
in my Indigenous environmental activism class here at UVic, we just talked about the early environmental movement in the early 20th century and how a group of settlers in the United States and Canada and Australia thought about the ways that the environment was rapidly changing. This was the middle of the Industrial Revolution. And they felt, well, the environment is rapidly changing and all these pristine spaces are starting to disappear. And we had better do something to preserve these spaces. Otherwise, there's going to be no unspoiled wilderness left for our future generations, our children and our children's children, and so on and so forth. And I problematize this. And other people, such as Tristan Atone and a variety of other scholars, have problematized this because in the settler state, when we talk about unspoiled wilderness, Oftentimes that's a point of view that erases indigenous presence upon the land. It essentially tries to return the land to this idealized, idyllic past state of being where there was nobody there and the land was just there uninhabited. And what that does is that completely erases indigenous histories because as I mentioned before, there were indigenous peoples in these spaces before there were settler states, right? And oftentimes they were pushed off the land in these various, in their various genocidal schemes. And so when conservationists say, well, we need to try to protect the unspoiled wilderness and they do this divorce from any understanding of the indigenous histories of the land, not only do they ignore this genocidal history, but they also ignore indigenous ways of conservation and of protecting land that have been there for generations and that have just as much merit as contemporary white European uh, settler modes of conservation and, and ways of thinking about such. And so, conservation often runs into this, this problem of, well, how do we deal with indigenous land tenure? And a lot of times it ignores it and we need to push away from that and think about the ways that um, land is something to be in good relation to both here on earth and extraterrestrially as well. Thank you so much for that. That's That was really interesting and really well said. So. DeAndre, if we could ask you, what are museums' roles and responsibilities in conversations around nature and heritage? Again, another great question. So I think there's three really key things that we need to keep in mind um, as far as museums' roles and responsibilities um, around nature and heritage and also and the ways that they engage with Indigenous peoples. And so the first way is the first role is bringing indigenous voices to the fore and finding ways to support these voices and make them visible. So museums inherently are very prominent spaces. These are spaces that we've set aside as spaces of conservation and spaces of history and the ways for people to engage with science and engage with nature and engage with art and engage with all these different cultural and natural areas in, in a way that's accessible. I, I have colleagues that have done work with museums and one of the most common refrains that I hear is that we need to make the work more accessible. We need to make museums more accessible to the everyday person. And I think that this creates a great opportunity to bring indigenous voices into prominence because by using that prominence, by using that visibility, they can bring indigenous voices into spaces that are accessible to the accessible to settlers and accessible to people that may not ordinarily be in engagement with these indigenous voices. And they can come to museums and they can see these voices and they can hear the perspectives and they can educate themselves about these things in ways that oftentimes they aren't able to do in other ways. Um, in, the, in the United States, and I would assume here in Canada as well, 
Um, I would guess that in a lot of places, um, in education about Indigenous peoples, unless you're in an Indigenous community, is not very strong and well-versed. And so people oftentimes, when I teach on Indigenous geographies, people often tell me, well, I didn't, I didn't know that these things were going on. I never learned about these in my classes. And I say, well, that's not your fault, right? This happens. Um, speaking as an avid museum goer, museums are amazing educational spaces and therefore they are a perfect focal point to bring these voices to the fore. Uh, the second way is recognizing the need for collaboration and ultimately Indigenous sovereignty, right? So it's not, it's not enough to just simply bring the voices in. It's, it's, it's more important to say, okay, how can we work together? And if we want to even take a step further, how can we, and I speak as we, as a you know, hypothetical museum, use our power and our privilege and our resources to lift up your voices, but also to let you take the lead as an Indigenous community in preserving cultural heritage sites. A lot of times, when I, I mentioned inclusion earlier in this interview, a lot of times inclusion kind of gets weaponized in weird ways where it says, okay, so we'll listen to your voices, Indigenous communities and Indigenous peoples, but we won't let you really take a leadership role because we want to keep that leadership role for ourselves. And I say, well, you have to, if you really want to do right um, by making space, you have to be able to let these communities take the lead. And that brings me to my third point, which is Museums are really well positioned to provide a space to host uncomfortable conversations for settlers surrounding the histories of these spaces and their links to indigenous erasure and genocide. So let's, let's say it for what it is, right? When people learn about these things, it is an extremely uncomfortable moment for a lot of people. They're saying, I've, I, I've never realized that my country could be capable of such violence and such genocide. And that discomfort is a bit of a double-edged sword. On one side, sometimes people tend to close off and they tend to say, okay, well, you know, this is uncomfortable. And you see the arguments come, well, I didn't do this, right? My ancestors might've done this, but I, I didn't do this. Why am I responsible for this? Or, you know, kind of more, far more hostile expressions, but also more benign kind of there where people just kind of shut down and then they say, okay, well, I don't really want to be around this. I don't want to face this. I have talked about that in other work that I've done, that this comfort, this discomfort is a really generative space, actually, where if people want to decolonize, you know, which is a word that often is fraught because it's often been rendered toothless, or they want to know, well, what can I do to start to move beyond this and start to understand how I can do right by Indigenous peoples, I say, you've got to embrace that discomfort, you have to embrace it for what it is and recognize the the structures that this country is built upon, I say country, both the United States and Canada, and recognize the power and privilege that often is bestowed upon settlers due to this genocidal legacy. But once you, you embrace that discomfort and you sit with it, then you start to think in a different way and you start to think, well, okay, so how can I harness this discomfort and start to take a step beyond what I've known and start to actually listen to Indigenous peoples and let them take the lead. And I think museums are one of the best places to have these uncomfortable conversations. And so I think really leaning into that and making the space possible for those conversations to flourish, I think is a third way that museums can really embrace a really proactive role and responsibility in guiding these, con these conversations around nature, heritage, and Indigenous peoples. 
Yeah, and a, and a number of those in the museum and cultural sector are looking towards creating these collaborative educational spaces that you're mentioning here. And the sector at large is also having conversations about repatriation, anti-racism and, and climate action, to name a few of these uncomfortable conversations and topics that you've just mentioned. So how do these themes intersect in the museum and cultural space? And perhaps how can folks then create spaces of learning about these themes in, in a way that they can absorb and is respectful of on the experiences of Indigenous communities? Sure. So there's two really good ways to go about that. So one of the biggest things that museums in the cultural heritage sector, and I should say the settler cultural heritage sector, because there is a very vibrant Indigenous cultural heritage sector as well, um, how they can really examine how these themes intersect is to first recognize that there are structures of power that have set, supported settler colonial and capitalist extraction that have placed indigenous communities in their environments on the brink of apocalypse, if not crossing the line already, right? And there are ways that museums have played a vital role in this historically, such as the robbing and disturbances and destruction of cultural resources, the grave robbing of indigenous graves and the robbing of, of graves and cultural sites of other colonized and marginalized and racialized peoples and the placing of resources that have been looted from that in, in museums and the ways that that ties into indigenous genocide. And even going, even going further, tying it into anti-racism and climate action, thinking about the ways that this historic disturbance and, and disrespect of these cultural sites leads to um, broader resource extraction on a wide scale, which leads, of course, to anthropogenic driven changes to the environment, which then leads to indigenous apocalypse. And I, one of my favorite scholars in, in the world, Kyle White, uh, has written about extensively how there has been this recent move by settler society towards the apocalypse, understanding, well, what happens if we end up basically killing the earth, to put it very flippantly and very crudely, right? What happens if we damage the environment beyond reasonable repair or mitigation, which is what the Anthropocene is all about, right? This idea that we have reached an era in human history where we are accelerating changes to the environment at a pace that far outstrips what we've done before. Kyle White and others say, well, for Indigenous peoples, that apocalypse is already here. That I remember in 2012, back when people thought that the end of the world was coming, there was so much attention paid to the end of the world. And people say, well, the end of the world has already come for Indigenous nations, right? That their worlds have already been shifted beyond recognition. But in spite of that, they've still been resilient and they have pushed forward anyways. And so recognizing the ways that these structures of power have driven Indigenous nations to that brink is one way to really link this all together. Uh, the second way is recognizing that there are deep networks of relations and accountabilities towards living things, human and non-human or more than human. And the ways that violence towards the land often means violence towards the body as well. And so I want to preface this by saying that I don't want to be prescriptive, right? There are a variety, there are multitudes of different indigenous cultures and indigenous histories and ways of looking at the world and being in the world and being in relation with the land and, and more than human kin or non-human kin. And so I want to preface it by saying, preface what I'm going to say by saying that, because I don't want to be prescriptive. I cannot claim to speak for all Indigenous peoples. I feel that I am scarcely able to speak for my own community. I don't even know if I can really do that. 
But I can say that generally speaking, a lot of different Indigenous ontologies that I that have been shared with me, and my own ontology is an Ojibwe man, it's really centered on these deep networks of relationships, right? That it is not, I'm not just a human in the world, divorced from nature and divorced from the things that are around me, that I am in deep relationship with them and that I'm accountable to them. And that going from our own creation story as Ojibwe, that I am the least important part of the ecosystem and that everything that surrounds me, I need to make sure that I protect them just as I'm protecting my own human kin, right? My wife, my mother, my family. I also need to view the environment in such a way. And I would gamble that other indigenous ontologies focus on similar themes, right? The idea that we are alone and isolated, that we are in a complex web of relations and therefore when there is violence against the land, such as resource, resource extraction, oil extraction, mining, forestry, things like that, these are violences both against us as Indigenous individuals because of our relation to the land, but also violence against, violence against the land itself and, and our more than human kin. And so really thinking about that is really key to kind of linking all these things together surrounding repatriation, anti-racism and climate action. And repatriation is important because that's where we think about, well, how do we, how do we do right by indigenous nations? How do we return the land? How do we return these resources? How do we, how do we return cultural artifacts to, to communities, right? That's a form of violence against bodies and against the land as well. And these are all things that are, are really important for museums to talk about. And I'm glad that these conversations are happening. And, and on that note of doing right and, and repatriation, can you speak a little bit about, or a little bit more, you've kind of touched on a couple of different opportunities of this, but how can museums or cultural institutions participate in repatriation for those that do not actually have physical items to return? Sure. So that's a really, really great question. I think that museums and cultural institutions that may not have physical collections of their own or even physical space can still do a couple of really important things to help Indigenous nations. And so one of the ways is that they can serve as facilitators to assist Indigenous nations. If, if they don't have items, they may still have space. Um, they may have resources, they may have funding, right? They may have, they may have these other resources to assist Indigenous nations in this work. Even if they don't have items to repatriate, they can still assist in those kinds of ways. They also can seek out resources to acquire and repatriate to tribes. You would, you would be amazed at how many things end up for sale that have been looted from Indigenous graves or Indigenous cultural sites. And if I were the director of a museum, and this is me speaking for myself and speaking hypothetically, if I were the director of a museum where, okay, we don't have a collection of items ourselves, but we do have funding, we've, we've been able to acquire funding, and we see these items for sale, we, I would talk to the local Indigenous community that would be affected by that item obviously being stolen from them and say, would you be open to us acquiring this and then repatriating it to you? And, and you can function in that kind of way. And so space is not a barrier. Resources are not a barrier. Funding maybe sometimes can be a barrier, but, there's, but usually museums will have one of those three resources available. And so if you can't make the other two work, you can make one of them work. And so I think those are two really important ways that all, all museums and cultural institutions can assist in this work, even if they don't have any personal stake or historical stake in it. 
And you've done a great job of providing an overview of some of the injustices Indigenous peoples face, particularly relating to uh, place and space and then how communities are impacted. What are some ways settler-led museums and cultural institutions can help conserve natural and intangible heritage? And moreover, how can they kind of reimagine the way this is communicated and look for creative ways of relating this to current stewardship led by Indigenous communities? So I think that one of the most important ways, and I've, I've mentioned this a few times, is collaborative projects, right? Projects where you are bringing in the community and you're giving a meaningful input, but I will take it a step further. What might a project look like where it is completely Indigenous led, where the museum is giving resources and giving space and giving time, but it ultimately doesn't derive any benefit as benefit flows completely to Indigenous communities? I think that that's a really big reimagining because oftentimes just in the transactional world that we live in, people oftentimes think, well, what's in it for me, right? What, what might be in it for my institution to do this? But I challenge museums to think a little bit more deeply and think, well, what happens if you don't get any benefit, but instead you've played a key role in returning important resources to an Indigenous community, right? Or you've helped preserve a natural space or something of intangible heritage that is deeply, vitally important to Indigenous community. And that intrinsic kind of feeling of actually doing a lot for decolonial and anti-colonial kind of practices. And so that's one way to do that. The second way that the second reimagining would be rather than setting aside natural heritage and intangible heritage as others, which oftentimes is done, right? Where we again, coming back to a point that I've mentioned a few times, we oftentimes place ourselves as separate away from nature, right? We other it to, to use kind of a more academic term rather than closing it off and, and trying to say, well, we wanna protect this for future generations. It's this unspoiled, space is, as was used by his conservation movements historically, rather than doing that, one other way is to let the local community, let the Indigenous nation decide how it should be best used. If the Indigenous nation says, well, we think it should be closed off, we don't want people disturbing it, or we want to keep it preserved, and we want to keep it in its current state, then close it off. But if the community turns around and says, well, maybe we want broader engagement, maybe we want people to know this, what this space is or what this resource is so people can educate themselves to make it happen. I think that oftentimes people, when it comes to conservation, we worry about broader engagement. The move is, well, we need to close space off, right? We don't want people disturbing this. We don't want people running around in it or doing, doing things in it. But if the community in question says, well, we actually want people to engage with this because we want people to understand the histories of this place and, and use it to help shape their contemporary understanding of who we are. I think that that's the nation's right to make that kind of determination and respect for indigenous sovereignty and, and decolonial slash anti-colonial practice says the community is the voice that matters the most, right? And so listening to them and really taking their lead on how to mold that space or how to open it or close it to engagement is necessary, I think is another really good reimagining that can be done. Well, that wraps up all of the questions that we had for you, DeAndre. So we wanted to thank you so much for all of the insights. Thank you so much um, for taking the time out of your day today to speak with us and share. We really appreciate all of your expertise and your knowledge. Thank you so much for today. 
It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for the thoughtful questions and for allowing me to um, hold space and to be in conversation with you all. In my, my people's language, I'll say thank you and I'll talk to you again. Miigwech, kigawapamen. Thank you so much, DeAndre. I echo everything uh, Tanya said and really appreciate your insights. And it was so exciting to hear um, your thoughts. If you would like to read more of DeAndre's work or more on these topics in general, we will be providing some links and resources. Thank you all so much for listening to our podcast. Look forward to future ones. And again, thank you so much, DeAndre, for taking the time. Thank you.